This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, I'm Jim Mallard, host of The Mallard Report. On The Mallard Report, along with my guest, we will have a conversation where we will share thoughts and opinions. For more information, my bio, past shows, social media links, and so much more, visit mallard.com. M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D dot com. And thanks for listening. Before we begin, quick quick reminder, schoolofairs.com, the new book by David Perodin. Uh, David will be on in uh, the first week in August. I think it's the 5th or the 6th. I should write that down to probably make for a better promo. But anyways, he'll be on. We'll be talking about school safety like you've never heard about it talked about before. That's schoolofairs.com. Okay. But my guest tonight is Judge Herb Dutel. Ju- Your Honor, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. We were just talking about these nice days, and you said it was 104 or 5 there, and I'm like melting just thinking about that. It was 104 in, in the shade, but since I wasn't standing in the shade, I didn't care. <laughs> no. It was 100. It was 104 today. That, but it's that dry heat, so it makes it all the different. <laughs> well, we, it, it, it's pretty steady most of the year. We've had some aberrational temperatures and weather this year, but for the most part, it's 60s, 70s, and low 80s most year round. You don't have to shovel that though. I'm, I'm a little jealous. I'll take I'll take a hundred. Well, you know, that's why I moved here. That, that's, a, that's primarily that was the reason I moved here from New York. So let's let's start with the let's start with the heavy lifting and then work our way fun back to the further fun stuff. Because clearly, I didn't bring you here to talk about weather. I mean, I'm sure we could, but uh, you're, you got a, I want to say new book. I didn't catch the publication date, but we'll call it a new book. From the Trench to the Bench, Navigating the Legal System and Finding Your Spiritual Path Along the Way. Um, right. Give me a, or for my listeners out there, obviously I'm sitting here holding the book, so I have a, a clue what the book's about, but for the people who haven't seen it yet, um, give me a, give them a little overview of what you got going on. Well, it's, it's, it's really a book for the lay person to show them how the legal system works from the inside. After 53 years of practicing both as a deputy district attorney and as a civil and criminal litigator, uh, I was appointed to the bench in 2008 as, as a Superior Court Judge pro tem. And, and I realized along the way how little the public really knows how the system really works from the inside and how unprepared most people are because they hear all this legalese and things and uh, I give a, a couple of examples you know what do you what do you what do you do if you you need to sue somebody or somebody sues you or somebody serves you with a small com- small claims court summons what if the landlord's trying to throw you out or you're arrested at three o'clock in the morning all of those kinds of questions are unknowns to the public and 
So I said to myself, you know, it's time for the public to really learn the, the law of business so that they can be better prepared. One of the biggest fears that people have is of the unexpected. And if they're dragged into the legal system, and we're talking mainly about uh, the middle class people, because the real rich people don't have to worry about lawyers, and the poor people can't afford them anyway. So the, the people in the middle really are, are captives. They don't know how to pick a lawyer. They don't know what kind of terms to make with a lawyer. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know who their judge is going to be. They don't know anything. And so they're going to be frightened, and they're going to be anxious, and they're going to be stressed. And I said, well, you know, if, if they really knew what they could re reasonably expect, then they'll be far less stressed and far less anxious because they'll have some full expectations. And that's one of the reasons I wrote it. And I, I tell this story because I, it also signifies one of the major reasons. I, I found that a lot of, of the litigants, and this is from the bench side mainly, uh, don't have lawyers. Either they can't afford them or whatever, or they try to do it themselves. So I give this story, true story, as a real example uh to the public. One of the things that we're not allowed to do, cardinal rule against, we can't give legal advice to either party in any litigation. Because if we do that, we're basically taking sides. So we, we can't do that. And I was sitting in a court which uh, is called unlawful detainer court, uh, deals mainly with foreclosures, landlord, tenant, evictions, things like that. And I was sitting in that court and before me came a guy, and my bailiff actually had come into chambers and said, you know who's out there? And I said, don't tell me. And he told me it was a world-class, literally, world-class NBA basketball player, retired. And then I, I put the name together with the file that I had on my desk. And he was self-represented. He had bought a house for $7 million when he was playing, and he had, he had all the rings, the whole deal. And I guess things had turned sour for him over the years. And he was about to be evicted. The bank was there, and they were going to take possession. And I asked him, when I came out, I said, do you have a lawyer? No. And I read his papers, and he was trying to do it himself. Now, I knew, because of some previous cases that I had decided that he had a reasonably decent defense, that he could have stayed in his house probably a couple of years. But I couldn't tell him. And I said, you know, you, you, you sure you don't want to consult with a lawyer? I'm going to give you two weeks. I'm going to stay the execution of this writ, which would have thrown him on the street. I'm going to stay it for two weeks. I think you should go talk to a lawyer. Now, he had a way out because the bank had conducted itself in such a fashion that he had a potential action against the bank. But in that court, you can't file a cross-complaint against the bank. You have to file a separate lawsuit. And if you file a separate lawsuit in a, in a, in a higher court, or what they call a general jurisdiction court, uh, under the right circumstances, that court will stay the action to get you foreclosed and thrown out. He didn't know that. 
I knew that. He didn't know that. And I was kind of hoping. He was a very nice guy. He had a very good reputation. I remember when he was playing. And I said to myself, gee, you know, if he only knew. He came back two weeks later. He didn't make any changes in his papers. He didn't realize what he could have done. And ultimately, I signed the writ, and he was evicted. And I was waiting. I was, I was coming out of the courthouse that day. He was waiting on the courthouse steps, and he came over to me, and he said, can I talk to you? I said, I'd love to, but I can't. I'm not permitted to have what they call ex parte communications with one party in the absence of the other. So I can't talk to you. But I will tell you, the clock has just started to run today. I think you need to talk to a lawyer. I don't know whether he ever did or he didn't. But the bottom line is it pointed out to me that uh, here was a guy that was self-represented. If he had known or he had a decent lawyer, he could have probably stayed in that house for two more years while they litigated the breach of contract case or whatever it is that he would have sued him for. And I, I see it so I see it so often, even now. Although now I'm sitting in small claims court. There are no lawyers in small claims court, which is one of the benefits of, of being a judge in small claims court. I don't have to deal with the lawyers. And uh, But when I was sitting in general jurisdiction litigation and things like that, I, I saw so much of this. So much unpreparedness, and so many people getting beaten up by the big guys beating up on the little guys. That's the way it was usually working. So, you know, the big companies would have major law firms. They'd send two, three lawyers in. I remember United Airlines did that on one case. And the other person is probably hanging on by their fingernails. If they can afford a lawyer, uh, that money runs out real quick because the lawyers will run up the bill real quick. That's not uncommon. And so I wrote the book with the idea of helping the public uh, navigate through the system by understanding the terms, what's reasonably expected. I, I wanted to give them information for those who were interested in just information. I wanted to create a reference book that you could have on your shelf that if something happened to you, you could pull it right down and there it's going to be all defined for you. And... I wanted to give people guidelines without giving legal advice, guidelines as to what to do if they're confronted with a situation, civil or criminal. And uh, and then I wanted to put a spiritual twist to it. That's why it says finding a spiritual path along the way. And there are ways by our own conduct that we can convert chaos into order and fulfillment. You just have to know the spiritual rules. If you follow the spiritual rules, you know, it's all about cause and effect. What you do is what you get. And so I explain that, and I interweave it into the information guidelines, and I tell stories of all the cases. I use all the cases, not all, I use a lot of the cases as an illustration because if it happened to somebody else, it could happen to you. So I give people a little uh, background. Some of them are very great, fun stories. I got great stories to tell. <laughs> I could probably, and I could probably do stand-up. Actually, some of them are really interesting. I, but, I second I, that. Actually, I mean, if you if you timed to just write, some of those stories would be really funny. The well, I've heard over ten thousand. I've heard over ten thousand cases. I mean, so 
I, I've got a little experience to uh, to judge. I sat between five and six years uh, in what's called restraining order court. I was the guy that was issuing or not issuing restraining orders. Temporary restraining orders, permanent restraining orders, and some of them were humorous and some of them were incredibly serious. Uh, they really ran the gamut. I've heard, I heard hundreds, hundreds of, of basic trials involving restraining orders. That's a very serious, very serious area. People don't take it seriously enough, but they should. And so I wanted to include those stories, which I did, giving illustrations as to when, where, how, and why, uh, hopefully with the public getting a little bit enough information uh, to, to be able to guide themselves accordingly if they found themselves in a situation. And it's, uh, it's easy to read. It was reviewed by Kirkus, which is a, some company that reviews books, and they liked it. And I even got an endorsement from the retired Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the State of Tennessee. She loved the book. So uh, hopefully the public will uh, use it when they need it or entertain themselves by reading it or just informing themselves of how the system works literally, truly, from the inside. Nobody really knows how we get along with our colleagues, who does what to whom and where and how the whole system operates. It's really, uh, it's really very political, very political. So let's go way back in time. I don't want to put a number on it because you've already mentioned how long you've been trying cases, and that's just amazing that you are still sane at this point. But what made you want to be uh, a lawyer in the first place? Uh, when I was five years old, my relative told me I had to be a lawyer because I had a big mouth and I liked to argue. So I <laughs> guess it was, it was ordained at age five that I was going to be a lawyer. And I always looked up to lawyers you know, we had shows like Perry Mason and things like that. I always looked up to lawyers with a lot of respect and admiration, somewhat idealistically and somewhat altruistically, and I never really ever wavered, never stopped. Funny, you, you mentioned Perry Mason, and then, I, you know, there's all this wave of uh, TV shows now that are, well, probably what you're doing now, small claims and all this other stuff. Do you think that helps, or does that hurt what's actually going on in the courtroom? Well, I'm not sure that it either helps or hurts, but I know Judge Judy, well, I've seen her show a bunch of times. Uh, the difference is her show is a dramatization. Our cases are real. When we sign a judgment, that's a judgment. And the court over there, is, and on TV, it's entertainment. And I've never seen a great opening or closing argument that takes a minute and a half, cut in between the commercials. I mean, it's, it's a portrayal in an abbreviated way of some of the things that you see. There were some great lawyer shows, but I think that it's designed oftentimes for drama rather than for, for reality. The reality is what we, hate, what we see every day. That's reality. Yeah, I was going to say, it makes it tough. I mean, all reality TV shows give you some entertainment or drama or whatever you want to put it as. But, yeah. So, well, the, uh, most of the time, they don't talk about the, reality, the business part of this. 
that the law of business is a business like any other. And the same kind of abuses that take place in the business world to the extent that they take place. And I'm not saying it happens all the time, but it happens frequently enough. Uh, that people don't understand that the legal system operates the same way. Profit motive is very significant. People will do and say things. I knew lawyers. I tried 99 jury trials when I was not counting those when I was a deputy DA, district attorney. And I saw lawyers do things that was so unconscionable. It was, it, it was, it was horrendous, unethical and dishonest, destroying documents and hiding witnesses and doing things like that. And the public never thinks of it that way. They just don't. You don't think that kind of thing goes on? Believe me, it goes on. You get the right judge, you shop for the right judge. Uh, yeah, if you can. I'm not saying the judges are taking envelopes of cash in it, but they have their own agendas, too. They want to either get elevated to a court of appeals or they're moving to one jurisdiction to the other. They, got, they have their own agendas. I was determined when I took the appointment, it came about very, very fortuitously, as a matter of fact, uh, that I was never going to do that. I, w I was so appalled by the way things were being done that I kind of committed myself to the fact that I was not going to be one of those people. So that's why, you know, I'm more a judge for the people than I am for the system. So what, what, that's the question. I was going to say, let's, let's flip to the spirituality side of all this for a few minutes, and I'm sure we've got, I've got a bunch of legal questions coming in from listeners, but we'll get back. Just everybody, hold on a minute. The, see, this is the conflict I'm sure you understand is doing your show of what I want to know versus what they want to know. So right now I'm going to put them on the side for just a few minutes, and we're going to talk spirituality, and then we'll get back to all their legal stuff in a second. So when – I don't want to phrase it this way, but when did you become awakened or aware – of spirituality and how it impacted your rule in the court? Well, it made an enormous difference because most of the things that happen in the litigation world, civil and criminal, are ego-related. People's motivation is oftentimes uh, revenge, get-even, uh, greed. All of these things are ego, every one of them. And if you're in it for an ego reason, it means you're going to attract negative energy. It's just the law of the universe. I mean, there's two types of energies out there, positive and negative. When you do a good deed or you share with somebody, as opposed to taking for yourself only, to the exclusion of others, and you use your ego for your own advantage dishonestly, what's going to happen down the road, whether it's a year or two years or ten years or at the end of your life or whatever it is, you're going to pay the price for that. You've, drew, you've drawn down negative energy, and I learned that principle early on. And I was in my 50s, and I realized that the law of cause and effect really does rule the universe. And you can call it karma, you can call it whatever you want. And so if you're in, a mid in the midst of a litigation and you have an opportunity to treat the other party with civility, not saying you should roll over and kick your feet up, then everything changes because your attitude changes. And I always tell people, well, I used to tell people, 
when they would come in and were looking for a lawyer, I said, who's your judge going to be? And they would always say, I don't know. I said, you know what that means? That means you settle your case. Because you don't know. Now, who's your jury going to be? I don't know. That's another reason why you settle the case. And so if you look at things from through a spiritual lens on resolution rather than uh, confrontation, you watch what happens to you. How much better you're going to feel. I mean, I always, t- I always tell this, this one case. It's, just, it's a spiritual case, too. Uh, I had a couple uh, in, in, in my court. They were living together and had a lease. And each of the parties was to pay half of the rent onto the lease. And he one day decided that he didn't care about her anymore. And he was taken off. So he left. He left her with the lease, the whole lease. And so they were both in front of me, and I said, uh, I looked at the lease, and I could see they were both signatories for the lease. And I said, well, you know what? What if I decide to rule in favor of the plaintiff? The defendant's going to have a judgment against him, and it's going to affect his credit. So as the people don't know this, and when there's a, a, a document called a judgment, it goes on your record and it affects your FICO score. It shows judgment, collection, you know, that kind of thing. It doesn't do you any good. And you have to pay the judgment as soon as somebody can find a way to collect it, either grabbing a bank account or putting what's called an abstract on property or garnishing wages, things like that. And I said, but I'll tell you what. I said to the plaintiff, I'll tell you what. If I give you a judgment and in a certain amount and I allow him to pay that judgment over, say, a year's period of time, not right now, over a year's period of time, and I reserve jurisdiction to enforce the terms of the settlement, which I could do, and if I do that, he will not have a judgment on his record because I won't enter judgment. I have the way I call I would lodge the judgment. And it wouldn't affect his credit. And I said, but you'd be doing him a big favor. Number one, you're going to end up getting paid because if he stops making the payments, I'll help you get the payments made. Or at least I'll give you the methodology to do that. And you do a nice thing for him. I know you're angry that he walked out on you and all of this. And I'm having this conversation in open court. She says, I want to get even. I said, getting even is not the answer here. Do the right thing, and someday, somewhere, you'll be in the right place at the right time. You'll get paid anyway, but you'll be doing the right thing. And she agreed. Now, I never saw those people again, but I would imagine that she made a connection to the positive energy by doing a nice thing for somebody else. She didn't have to do it. She could have gotten the judgment. I was going to give her the judgment anyway. But the, the reality is, when you do good things for people, Good things happen to you in return. Just a rule, just a rule of the universe. It's not religious. It's, ba- it's a basic spiritual principle. And it's, it's the same thing about uh, uh, saying negative things about people. If you engage in all of that, all you're doing is transmitting negative energy out there, and you're going to get back negative energy. And so we talk about how you can use some of these tools, because that's what they are, technological tools, to alter your life in a better way so that it, you're in the right place at the right time instead of being 
walking under the building and the and the scaffold falls on your head. You know, so uh, we we kind of combined that. I decided that, that this would give me an opportunity to share with the public more than just information and more than just telling stories, uh, but a way for them to use these practical tools to make their lives better. And a friend of mine talked me into taking the appointment. So I was at lunch with him one day, and he said there were four judges short, and there was budget crisis. It was 2008. And uh, he asked me if I would volunteer. And I said, well, how long is that going to take? Well, you have to do this, that, the other thing, and whatever. And so I said, I'll give it a try. It's going to be temporary, and uh, I would be in an interesting position. I thought it would be fun, and I wanted to give back to the public. This was an opportunity to do that, so I did it. And from one or two days a week, it ended up I was working almost full-time on the bench. So that's the way it started, and it, it was just so rewarding to me in terms of satisfaction, that I kept on doing it. That's, that's <laughs> the story. Keeps you busy, keeps you young, right? Yeah, but I'm, I'm doing it a lot less now because uh, they just hired two new judges, two nice young judges, <laughs> and you know, they, they call me when they need me. So that, that's, that's perfectly fine by me. So I, I'm going to dive right back into the legal stuff here. Um, this comes from my chat room. I wave hello to all of them. Is it perjury to plead down if you didn't commit the original crime, or is the crime that you or the crime that you're pleading down to? I, I'm I'm trying to figure out why we're pleading down if we, we're not going to trial. But anyways, are you talking about a plea bargain? Yeah, what you're talking? Yeah. The majority of criminal cases, I started in uh, my career basically as a prosecutor. Uh, a lot of times charges are, are filed that carry major, major sentences. They're hard to prove, but it's possible, it's provable, and any jury on any given day, you never know. And at the bottom end of the spectrum is a plea to a misdemeanor. And so what happens often, often, because most of the defendants have committed the crime. Most. I'm not saying all, certainly not all. But uh, if you're looking at 20 years hard time in state prison versus six months at the county jail, uh, a lot of times it's not a tough call. Is it perjury? It's not perjury. Perjury is making a statement under oath that you know that you know is untrue, and at the time you... Uh, make that statement you know it's not true uh, that's perjury I don't I, I, I've seen very very few I can't even remember any where anybody's been prosecuted for perjury in, in this, any civil litigations for sure and I don't even remember any when I was a DA very tough to prove those you have to have an intent perjury is an intent crime you have to know that you're lying to somebody the same time as it's not being true. So I don't know if I answered that person's question. I think you did. Perjury. So uh, in this in this vein of uh, lying to people, uh, the Fifth Amendment. I see people saying that somebody should take it all the time, but I think it gets thrown around too much. Am I wrong in saying that? Because, or am I right in saying that people should take it more often than not? 
Well, that's a very interesting question because I, I just interviewed Roger Stone on my radio show. I have a radio show mm -hmm. called For the People, and it's on uh, iHeart, For the People. And I interviewed Roger four times, and obviously the Fifth Amendment is an issue. It's going to come up. It's been coming up. It really depends on the circumstance. The general rule, general rule, among criminal defense lawyers, because that's what I did when I left the DA's office, I became a defense lawyer. Uh, the general rule is take the fifth or don't have your client testify. That's, that's even better. Uh, the fifth will protect you against criminal prosecution, and that's about all it does to you. I've always wondered whether or not a jury would have a negative response to somebody taking the fifth because the old theory was if they didn't do it, why don't they tell us what the story is? And so that's always a wrestle. But the general rule is take the fifth uh, if you can uh, or don't testify at all. In a criminal case, you don't have to testify. It's different in a civil case. There's a Fifth Amendment right in a civil case, believe it or not, but the penalty for, for asserting it in a civil case, if you are the plaintiff, you, you end up losing your civil case because you didn't testify, and the court will dismiss your case. And so it is, then the question is, well, if there's a criminal case pending at the same time as you have a civil case, what do you do? If you take the fifth in the civil case, your civil case may be over, but if you don't take the fifth and you testify, it could be used in the criminal case. And criminal defendants tend to shoot themselves in the foot. And they don't make great witnesses. Traditionally, we don't put the witness, we don't put them on the stand unless you have to have them. They're the only percipient witness. Or you have to have them on there. And then you run the risk. Because the DAs that are cross-examined, and they're usually pretty well prepared, and uh, your client can end up uh, shooting himself, not literally. So the Fifth Amendment, usable, absolutely. Practical, most of the time, yes. Sometimes, no. So I've talked to Roger a couple times. And I Tell me what I'm, I mean, I understand the basic premise of his case, but is there something else I should know that I wouldn't know from being, well, being the outsider looking at this, legal, you know, like your perspective is probably different than mine. Well, I, I, I asked Roger a question the last time I interviewed him, which he was not able to answer because of the gag order. But I think it's a very interesting legal question whether or not you can have an obstruction of justice if there's no underlying crime. Because you have to prove what's called materiality. Materiality in every case uh, means it's got to be of, of some significance. It's a little vague, but... There's plenty of cases that define materiality, uh, and uh, if there's a finding that there was no criminal conduct uh, involving whatever the political ramifications may have been, uh, Roger's statements may be not material. That makes it non-obstructive. And I don't know the answer to that. I don't think it's been answered by anybody yet. I, I researched it, and I couldn't find any case authority to support one position or the other. So the, the, the intellectual sides are undoubtedly going to end up in the court, and it will wind its way up to at least the Circuit Court of Appeals. For your audience, 
the federal system and the state systems are, are different. The federal system, you start out, the trial court is the district court. It's called the district court. And there are lots of them across the country. And then the country is broken up into what they call circuits. I think there's 12 or 14, I'm not really sure. Uh, that's the Court of Appeals for federal cases. And they have to listen to appeals if they're filed on a timely basis. And above that court is the Supreme Court. They don't have to hear anything. I don't think they, they don't even have to hear death cases. They don't have to, it's all discretionary. And it's done procedurally with a bunch of complicated processes which we don't need to talk about today. The state court, the trial court in California, is the superior court. Then there's the Court of Appeals, and then there's the California Supreme Court. And those deal with non-federal issues. And so uh, I don't know how far this is going to go, but it's, I, I suspect it's going to get up to the, at least to a decision made by the one of the circuit courts uh, on this issue, whether or not uh, you have to have a crime to be having obstruction. Well, I'd be the... Obstru so I mean, that's my outsider point of view. You'd have to have a crime to obstruct the justice of... But I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure about that. What if you were attempting a crime and a crime never happened, and then you try to cover it up? The cover-up is the crime. Not the underlying action. That's the argument. Somebody's going to make that argument. I can guarantee you. Wouldn't that be conspiracy, though? Conspiracy to commit whatever it would be? Well, conspiracy and obstructions are, are, are different. Conspiracy requires an agreement among two or more people uh, with an intent to commit a, a criminal act, and there's what's called an overt act, meaning that they started the process going. Conspiracy is a very complicated area of the law. Structure is a lot easier, and the requirements are a little different. But uh, when, when it comes time to talk about conspiracy, there's no such crime called conspiracy. People think there's a crime called conspiracy. Not so. No such crime. It's the conspiracy to commit a particular crime. And so, therefore, you have to show that there was something done in furtherance of that effort commit that crime. That's what, why you get a lot of different people involved. Some people may not even know that there's a crime being committed, but they end up at the end, at the tail end, like driving the car away from the bank. Or people who were in at the beginning have planned it and had nothing to do with it beyond the plan. I mean, every case is different. Conspiracy is actually, as a trial lawyer, it does the fun cases. You could call it fun. <laughs> That's fun cases. Because you've got so many little pieces. And the prosecution's got to make all of these burdens. And I should also mention uh, the three most important words in the legal system. You know what the three most important words in the legal system are? Uh, no, but I'm no. sure you're going to tell me here. I absolutely <laughs> I'm kind of giving you the tease. Burden of proof. I start every, every court session... I start with the same little speech. My bailiff is so tired of hearing this one by now. Uh, it's basically, in a civil case, one of the two parties, assuming there's only two parties, one of the two parties has what's called the burden of proof. They have to convince the, the finder of fact, which is usually the jury, and sometimes without a jury it's the judge, 
that it's more likely than not that what they're saying is supported by the evidence. If they don't do that, they lose because they didn't make their burden of proof. And I decide many cases, especially in small claims court, uh, many cases on, if I don't know who's right and who's wrong, the party with the burden of proof loses. Loses, no question. Now, in a criminal case, the burden of proof is called beyond a reasonable doubt. Doesn't mean beyond any conceivable doubt, beyond a reasonable doubt. And so it's a much higher and much more difficult burden, and that's why a lot of criminal cases don't get filed. Prosecution sits down and says, I'm not going to win this one. I remember when I was a deputy DA, when I first started in the office, I was what they called a filing deputy. In other words, I sat behind a desk, and the cops came in with their stories and their reports and whatever it is, and then I had to decide whether to file criminal, a criminal complaint. And our guideline was if we didn't think we could beat them, we didn't think we could prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt, we didn't file it. And so burden of proof is very, very important. There's even a third burden that fits in the middle. I don't want to get into it today, but it deals with punitive damages. And in restraining order courts, the burden of proof is higher, except for domestic violence, which is lower. So I was doing that, too. So, domestic violence, restraining order, and family court. So this raises a question in my mind. How, how long does it take you to come to grips with knowing pretty quickly, I'm guessing, because I'm sure as the police officers are bringing you cases, you can't be sitting there for a week figuring this out. How long did it take you to get comfortable knowing which ones are the prosecutable well, and which ones are not? There's certain time limitations to file, number one, especially if the potential defendant is in custody. They have to be arraigned within a certain period of time. Arraignment means charging somebody. Uh, and people will tend to exaggerate their cases, too, and make them look better. Because remember, they're the only ones that are there. If the, the defendant has nobody there talking for them, and so you have to accept what, if what the officer is telling you is absolutely accurate, and you want to look at the question of admissibility of evidence. Sometimes uh, there's a warrantless, warrantless search. I mean, you can have warrantless searches under certain circumstances, but you're looking to see whether or not the defense will make a motion to suppress evidence because it was obtained illegally. Either it's a Miranda statement, somebody made a, a statement that he, they were not properly advised of the Miranda rights, or whether or not they broke into the back of somebody's car and took stuff out, and that's a motion to suppress. You have to analyze a lot of issues. Who are the witnesses going to be? Are there any eyewitnesses? Is it a paper-type case? A lot of fraud cases, a lot of business-type cases are paper cases. You're, you're going to have the records from the bank or from whoever it is, and they tend to be more accurate. But if you just got a guy coming in or a gal coming in and telling you this long story, uh, makes a difference. Makes a difference. I remember dismissing a criminal case in the middle of one because I... I saw that what I was told was not really accurate. Filed it and tried it, and halfway through, I moved to dismiss it. In the interest of justice, the magic words. So I, I've got this weird question, because I'm not sure which hat I want to ask you under, but I'm going to ask you. 
because as as a radio person, you do this as well. There's people you ask questions of people, and then it's because no matter what, you want the truth, right? But we all know the first question isn't the one you get the truth with. You can scream, "You, I want the truth from you all day long," but it's the art of the follow up question that makes the truth more discoverable. Am I correct in saying that? And how do, how do I get better at the art of the follow up? Trying to get to where I want to get. The first thing, in a criminal case, as a criminal defense lawyer, you never ask the person if they did it. Because if you have to call them as a witness, you can't say uh, to them, did you do it? And they say no when they told you privately that they did. So you have an ethical issue, so you can't ask them that question. Uh, you don't ask them that question. Unless you're sure that you're never going to call them as a witness, and in criminal cases, the defendant never has to testify. That's what the Fifth Amendment is. And, uh, and so, therefore, if they're never going to testify and not subject to any kind of cross-examination, maybe. But I don't. I never did. Uh, the first, one of the first things I was telling clients, uh, and I did a lot of civil litigation. I'd say 50% of my practice was civil litigation. I say, the worst thing you can do is not tell me the truth. Worst thing. Not that I care. I don't make moral judgments. I'm going to represent you the best I can. I don't care whether you're a crook or you're not. makes no difference to me whatsoever. But you've got to tell me everything. The worst thing you can do is not tell me, and then I get surprised. And it happened to me in a, in a, in a, in a case. A client absolutely swore to me that this was... The, he never saw this document, and blah, 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 blah. And uh, he did. He actually authored the document. And the jury was out for a very short period of time. He had told me I could have prepared for it. But he never did. Denied it. He never saw this document. So lying to your lawyer is not a good idea. And don't worry, that whether they like you or not, as long as you can pay the bill, you'll be fine. <laughs> They're not going to kick you out as long as they're writing, you're writing the check. In criminal cases, we used to say, you collect the money while the tears are still falling. Because <laughs> otherwise they're never going to pay you. you know? Yeah, I, I'm sorry, I'm just still trying to figure out how you can say you've never seen a document that you wrote. Just, you know, I guess that's... Well, because he didn't know that everybody would figure it out. But what he had done is he had spelled the word receipt, R-E-C-I-E-P-T. And his regular records, from his regular records, it was misspelled the exact same way. That makes me think And the accountant you try to blame had spell checked, so that wasn't going to happen. That makes me think of friend of the show, Jim Fitzgerald, the guy who um, caught the Unabomber, and all the language, the language stuff that he does. Um. By, by the way, you know, I, I think that lawyers get a bad name unjustifiably sometimes. Uh, I've told many people, I don't do it anymore, that I, I would work sometimes till 2 o'clock in the morning with files and papers and on the phones. And lawyers, generally, the, the good, honest lawyers work very, very hard. And a lot of times it's without any appreciation because the client loses, they blame the lawyer. The client doesn't get as much as they think they should get, they blame the lawyer. The lawyers work very hard and most of the time without any real recognition. There are a lot of very good lawyers out there who are dedicated and devoted 
to doing the right thing. In fact, I, devo- I dedicated my book to the lawyers. Not only the lawyers, but I, uh, I, I said, I got the book right here. The book is dedicated to all the hardworking lawyers out there who believe and practice the principles of justice. They are in it for the right reason. And that's true. But there are also some very bad ones out there. Some totally dishonest. Uh, I, I can't be too cynical about it, but it, it's not a perfect meld, I can assure you. There's a lot of bad stuff out there. That, but that's true in any profession, just to clean up that. Absolutely. I mean, there's bad doctors Absolutely. out there. Absolutely, but if, you, if, you, if your life is depending... I'm not talking about whether it's in a capital case or not. But if your life, your financial life, your personal life, or whatever it is, even in family court, uh, is at stake, that's your life. And you want somebody who's going to believe in you and it's going to work for you. You don't want somebody who's going to be looking at the clock every 15 minutes and billing you for it. Uh, and that happens. But I tell this story all the time. Uh, a friend of mine had a big-time corporation. I was not counsel for them. And he had like $32 million offshore. He was in pretty good shape. And he ended up in a, in a litigation, and he asked me to go with him to uh, this law firm that he wanted to hire. And uh, it was one of the largest in America, thousands of lawyers. And I went. It was a Sunday. And I went in with him to the conference room. There's five lawyers there. Five lawyers from this firm. And I said to the lawyer number one, what do you, what do, you do? Number two, what do you do? Blah, 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 blah. And as we were leaving, I said to him, Bob, they are going to hose you. You're going to get hosed like you never saw it before. They were billing him five times for everything. <laughs> and that, that's not uncommon. When they know you got money, brother, watch out. Uh, that artwork that you see on the walls on the 54th floor looking out over the park, who's paying for it? You are. Well, thankfully, I'll never... Well, hopefully, someday, maybe that'd be my problem, but right now... Yeah, I don't have the fair- problem is, <laughs> many people, and I remember one guy in particular, nice, nice guy, he couldn't eat, he couldn't sleep. He was in this lawsuit with his prior lawyers, as a matter of fact, and he, 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 it was his whole life. He lost like 30 pounds, and he had a falling out with his wife. This case became his whole life, and people will do that. They'll, they'll eat, drink, sleep, and do nothing else but think about their lawsuit. Not healthy. Settle, make a deal. Should I tell one quick story about that? Yeah, please. Why not? It's just a very interesting case, too. It was a small claims court case where a family was suing a private school for return of the tuition for their daughter, who apparently was not fitting in very well with the school. And so they sued the school for the $10,000, because that was the maximum in small claims, to get their money back. And what I always did was I always tried to get people to settle. In fact, I even went to the mediation school at Pepperdine, who was going to have me as a settlement judge. And... I said, go outside in the hall. We're going to take a break. Go outside in the hall, see if you can get this resolved. Because you don't know what I'm going to do. I could give them the whole 10000 or I could give you nothing. You have no idea. 
and I can play poker. So if you want to settle it, it's the smart thing to do. So they go out there, they come back in, and they couldn't settle. And so the plaintiff, the family, got zero. And in small claims court, for those of you who know nothing about small claims court, the plaintiff does not, in California, does not have a right of appeal. It's over. One judge, done. Period. The end. And so my bailiff, whose name was Tox, he said, at the end of the day, he said, you know what? I was in the hall. I was listening to this conversation. The defendant offered to give him 5000 The plaintiff said, nope, I want it all. Came in and got a zero and no appeal. True story. And, uh, and so it is almost always, almost always, in your best interest to settle your cases. It eliminates the risk. Eliminates the aggravation, it gives you certainty, and it feels a whole lot better than spending your life chasing after somebody else. That's why I recommend that. I settle a lot of cases. I really do. I push hard to settle them. Even the, even the uh, restraining order cases. I one time had four girls that beaten up one other girl badly, hospitalized. And they were like 15 years old. And one party was seeking a restraining order. And I said to the four girls who were there with their parents, I said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. If you transfer schools, four separate schools, I'll deny this restraining order. Otherwise, it's on your record for life. And in California, once it's on your record, it's on there forever. You cannot get it off. And if you're looking for a job and people are checking your backgrounds, they see restraining order. It means somebody thinks you're unstable, somebody being a judge. And so I pushed them into a settlement. They all left. The girl was protected, and the other kids went to another school. Period. The end of the story. You have to be creative sometimes to get these things resolved. Yes. No, that's a- Some of these stories are in the book, by the way. Yeah. I, I, I tell them now because I'm well, it's, it's a now. It's a good marketing tool for the book because the stories in the book are worthwhile so for those people oh i i don't you, you, you could chuckle through some of them i gotta tell you i i have a hard time sometimes not laughing truly truly i've heard stories that would you, you, you gotta break up i could do stand-up comedy with oh. some of these stories i think that'd... and it's education you know it, it gives you it, it gives you a real sense of how the system works and it makes you feel more comfortable because you now have some knowledge at your at your fingertips, and in English, yes, I don't use any. Tech- if I use technical terms, I explain what that term means. So if Trust- I say it's a demur, I explain what a demur is. Public has not doesn't have a problem understanding any of the terminology. None. Coming from a guy who I even- <laughs> appreciates I all that. <laughs> well, I attach some forms. For example, violence cases. People always ask, Should I, do I need a lawyer? And the answer to that is, maybe. There are certain circumstances where a lawyer's not going to do you a bit of good. There's a form that you could fill out in the courtroom. It's the same form that that lawyer is going to fill out after he's charged you $3,500. Same form. <laughs> you can so, do it yourself. So you've been around the, the legal system for over 50 years now. Is there one big sweeping change, I'm not saying law-wise, but in the industry, in the the court system that you'd like to see? Absolutely, and I've said so, I've said it for 30 years. 
I don't get much of I don't get much of attention from it because it's not in the best interest of most lawyers. The, uh, the system operates on what's called the American system. The legal system here works on it's called the American system, meaning that in a lawsuit, the uh, each party bears its own attorney's fees, uh, unless there's a contract that says to the contrary, or it falls under one of the limited exceptions. The British rule is very different. The British rule is the loser pays. In other words, if you lose, you pay your lawyer and you pay the other guy's lawyer too. I say guys generically. The other person's lawyer as well. That's going to drive cases closer to settlement. And there are techniques that I, I lay out these techniques in the book, by the way. One's called the high-low. One is uh, a, called the statutory offer. I mean, if we, if we really did seek to enforce some of that and people used it, we would cut down on the tremendous caseload that exists in the, in the court system. It used to be it took five years to get to trial. Now they've got an accelerated program where they push the judges to get cases resolved within 18 months. But they're, they're, they could be forever, and forever keeps the clock running. And so I would I would adopt a British system, which would force people to settle because it's practical to settle. I would raise the I would raise the statutory limit at small claims court. California is ten thousand dollars. I'd raise it to twenty five thousand. Uses no lawyers, and the rules of evidence are relaxed. In other words, hearsay, which is normally not admissible, hearsay is an out of court statement made being offered for the truth when the witness is not present in court, uh, that doesn't apply in small claims court, and it doesn't apply in restraining order court. And so the average person could come into small claims court with a $25,000 case, tell their story, have an answer within 30 days, and if they're the defendant, they could appeal, but not a plaintiff, uh, and have a right of appeal if you're the defendant and not have to go through all of the trauma and all of the nonsense that goes along with a civil litigation. Civil litigations generate paper, lots and lots of paper. And paper means money. And so they'll send you this and they'll request that, and it goes on and on and on. That doesn't happen in small claims court. There's no such thing as that in small claims court. And you get due process as long as you've got a decent, honest judge. And we're it. We're it. So I would raise the, I was raised I would raise that limit to twenty five thousand dollars. That's why my colleagues, some of the lawyers hung out with, uh, said, "No, that's a bad idea. It's a bad idea because the, the cases between ten and twenty five are going to be gone for them. They they will be done in small claims court. And I would also assess greater penalties in restraining order cases for a frivolous complaint. I once asked my clerk. So what do you, I don't keep track. What percentage of restraining orders do you think that I sign? And I would hear like 25 cases a day. She said, you, you grant about 5%, 5 to 8%. Some of them are such junk. The neighbors and the, the, the total garbage. I'd, I'd, I'd make it expensive to do that if you're seeking something like that when there's no justification. It has to be a meaningful cause of action, otherwise you're going to pay the cost. Right now it's free. In California it's free. You could file for a restraining order for free. I have it served for free. 
<laughs> I would change that too. That's all in my, that's all in my book. <laughs> I know it is. That's why I wanted to ask you. Uh, speaking of, well, um, no, you know, it, it's somewhat revolutionary in, in a sense, but it, it really works for the benefit of the public. Everything that I've said really works for the benefit of the public. That's so, what the book is designed to do. So before we run out of time, um, where can people buy the book? Amazon. Where can people find it's you? Uh, I have a website, and all my radio shows, by the way, we've done 75 radio shows. I had a transgender woman on yesterday, which was kind of interesting show. Um, the website is judgeherbdodell, D-O-D-E-L-L, dot U-S. And uh, the book is called From the Trench to the Bench, Navigating the Legal System and Finding Your Spiritual Path Along the Way. Uh, and the revised version, don't get the old one, I revised it recently. Uh, just uh, click on it, you can get a free read for some of it. Uh, and have it on the shelf. You never know. Somebody sues you, you need to sue somebody, you get evicted. You never know. Having it right there in layman's terms is a very, very good asset. Plus, it's easy to read. It, it definitely is easy to read and well-wrote. And um, like you said, a reference book, too, because some of the stuff I've never been thought of. I mean, but I never plan on getting arrested, but, you know. <laughs> well, people don't know what bail is. People don't know what bail is. How much does it cost? Do I have to have bail? Can I get out without it? People don't know that. They don't even know what a bail what, what a what a bounty hunter is or a bail bondsman. I tell you what it's about. I've seen that one on TV you know, though. You know all the cast, and you know what? If you're arrested for a felony, you know you, there's there's two possibilities. One, you're going to be indicted by a grand jury. That's less frequent, and the other is by filing a criminal complaint, and you're entitled to what's called a preliminary hearing. That's a mini trial. If you remember the public, you have no clue that it even exists. And it's there for you. And there's a potential remedy for it, too. I don't know if you get to the technicalities of it, but uh, I, I go through the anatomy of a lawsuit. How does it start? How do you start it? How much does it cost you? Do you have to do certain things? How do you pick a lawyer? You know, that's a very tough, tough thing. You walk into somebody's office... You hire somebody who you saw their name on the back of the bus. <laughs> if you look at these ads on TV at night, if you could read the small print without your optometrist, the fact of the matter is, those are not lawyers that are going to represent you. They're going to get your call, and they're going to refer it to somebody in Wyoming or wherever else they, they're located and get a, a kickback or a referral. That's how that works. You see all these, you see all these, whatever they're after promoting. Did you use talcum powder? It's just marketing. Those lawyers, you, you, you meet the senior partner maybe once. Maybe. They come in, shake your hand, they do three minutes, how are you? And the next thing you know is you've got an associate who got out of law school six months ago. And hourly versus contingency, or, or even a hybrid. I talk about in the book, how do you pick a lawyer? What, okay. do, you, what do you ask? How do you, how do you know which ones to pick? What Good. questions should you ask? All good stuff, Herb. We're out of time right as of now. So thank you, and we'll have to get you back. Right. It went very fast. It went very fast. Now it's time for dinner. Have a good one. Good night, Herb. Good night.
Okay, thanks very much. Talk. The views and opinions expressed on the Mallard Report are those of the host and participants. For past shows, social media links, and so much more, visit Mallard.com. M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D.com. And thanks for listening. very good book if you get the opportunity to pick it up pick it up just saying for the record in a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us whoa 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 cut oh come on it wasn't that bad it's a bit dramatic let's just tell them about the show guys we are the canned air podcast join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture we also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on CandairPodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network.